You know, I have a confession. I am such a better singer when I'm standing right next to Andy Blossom. <laughs> I just sound really good. And he's laughing, politely. No. <laughs> so I heard a story this week about a young physician named Athena. She was an intern in a big city in a large medical center, and she typically worked the night shift. And so, it was her responsibility on the night shift to pronounce the death of patients who had died. It was not difficult in technical terms, in terms of the medical skill required. It was a pretty simple task, but it was hard emotionally. It was sometimes very discouraging. And as anyone who's sat up and worried in the middle of the night knows, that hour between 2 and 4 a.m. can feel really hard. And so to go and pronounce someone as dead in that moment was difficult. She spoke with the chaplain um, at the hospital, and she told him that she was exhausted, disheartened, discouraged, and she was kind of feeling desperate because what it meant to be a doctor was starting to be lost on her. She really felt she'd lost her purpose. So we're going to come back to Athena's story in a little bit. The story is told by a Buddhist hospice chaplain named Frank Ostaseski. His book, The Five Invitations, provided the inspiration for my sermon series this month. He actually is a leader in the American Buddhist community and was the founder of the first Buddhist hospice in the United States. I was introduced to this book during my time as the interim minister of the Spiritual Life and Learning Center as First Community Church, and I really commend it to you as a powerful reflection, um, not on death particularly, but on living fully and living into whatever spiritual path is the right one for you. So today, we're considering Ostaseski's invitation to bring your whole self to the spiritual journey. And someone said to me after the service at 9 o'clock this morning at North Campus, she said, Deb, I feel like in my case, I'm supposed to bring my whole mess to the spiritual journey. I, of course, said, well, number one, you're not a mess. But yeah, that's pretty much the message for all of us. We see over and over again in the stories about Jesus that he truly brought his whole self to his ministry. It's one of the reasons he was so powerful, right? I mean, we see him healing and preaching and loving and reaching out to people who were isolated and on the margins. And he's doing this wherever he goes. I mean, people are constantly on top of him wanting something from him. We also see him being exhausted, discouraged, we see him getting angry. We see him getting frustrated, particularly with the disciples, his closest friends and colleagues. You can't blame him. My friend Emlyn Ott, formerly my sem seminary professor, always referred to the disciples as the keystone cops of the Bible. 
So today in the text from Matthew, we hear the writer narrating the, uh, the demanding nature of Jesus' ministry. And seriously, this passage has kind of a frenetic feel to it, doesn't it? I mean, it's going from here to here to here and this story and that story and this person and that person. And if it were a movie, there'd be all those like, you know, jerky camera movements and quick changes of scenery and all those things to give us that sense of the, the frenetic pace of these stories. What we have here is people from all different walks of life, different levels of position and privilege, different genders, people at the exact opposite ends of the social spectrum. I mean, in this story we have included, it's as if you were talking about, you know, Jeff Bezos and his new yacht versus a mother of four who's waiting at the border to get in with her hungry children. I mean, that's how far this spectrum spreads. We have the leader of the synagogue. He's important. He's confident. He's used to people doing what he expects them to do. He's male in a culture and a social environment where that is definitely a position of privilege. And so he feels perfectly comfortable walking right up to Jesus, face to face, and telling him what he wants, what he's here for. In contrast, we have the woman who's referred to only as the hemorrhaging woman. She has no resources. She doesn't even have a name in this story. We only know her by her illness. She would not think of walking up to Jesus and looking him in the eye and talking to him or asking for something. She's not only physically ill, but she's ostracized. She's left out of the community. Her malady makes her impure in the culture. So first Jesus says to the synagogue leader, yes, yes, I'll come to your daughter. And then he allows himself to be interrupted by a woman who he doesn't even see. And he not only heals her physically, but he restores her to community. He gives her back her dignity. He gives her back her place in the community. He gives her back maybe her ability to have children. And he calls her daughter. Thank you, that's a good place for an amen. <laughs> the leader of the synagogue, a person of prestige and power, and when I describe him, I even kind of puff up just talking about him. He's accustomed to being respected. He gets down on his hands and knees to beg Jesus for help. Really, they're both in their own way, doing whatever it takes to get this guy's attention. They are bringing their whole selves to the encounter. They are way past trying to manage the impression that they're giving of how their life is going. And we've all done that, right? I'm fine, I'm good, everything's great. We say that sometimes. 
This is not a pretty Instagram feed that these people are living in this moment. It's quite the opposite. They are revealing parts of themselves that are afraid, that are wounded, that are powerless, even shameful by the standards of the time and culture. They're desperate. And who could blame them for wanting a miracle? Hmm. Let's take a time out here and talk about miracle stories. They're a favorite in the Bible for good reason. But that's what we have in this passage from Matthew. And you know, I don't know how you feel about this, but miracle stories can make me a little bit uncomfortable. We all know that sometimes the treatment is not successful. Sometimes a loved one doesn't recover. Sometimes a marriage cannot be repaired. There's an Episcopal preach, uh, priest, Barbara Brown Taylor, who many of you know, many of you have read her books. And she has written that sometimes she thinks miracle stories do more harm than good. Here's what she writes about it. The miracles of Jesus remind us that the way things are is not the way they will always be. He is living proof that God's will for us is not chaos, but wholeness. The problem with miracles, she writes, is that it's hard to witness them without wanting one for yourself, too. We get that, don't we? So imagine if you were in their shoes, in the shoes of the people who are the characters in our story today. What if you were frantic about the imminent death of someone you love dearly? What if you were facing profound brokenness in yourself, in your family, in your community, and one person had the power to make all the difference? What if you had tried everything, followed every path, consulted every expert, spent every nickel you have, and your last bit of energy just to get someone to make it right. The frantic, desperate stories in this passage are not what anyone would put on their social media feed. The tax collector who feels only shame when he's invited to the dinner table who feels the disdain of those religious leaders, the hemorrhaging woman who doesn't even dare to approach Jesus or speak to him. All she dares to do is just touch the edge of his cloak. These are individuals who are willing to bring their authentic selves. They took a considerable risk to bring their whole selves in the hope that this famous teacher and preacher and healer would respond to them. They took a considerable risk in the hope that this healer would listen to them, would care about them too, might even heal them. A real challenge arose for me in the idea of bringing one's whole self to the journey with God. If I believe that God wants me to bring my whole self 
And I am absolutely convinced that God wants that. Then God wants the same thing for those people that I don't like so much. By the way, another person after the nine o'clock service said, thanks for the challenge, Deb. <laughs> God longs for relationship with the white supremacist, the bigot, the person who is intolerant, the person who is homophobic, the person who would rather argue about pronouns than reach out to someone who might be just on the verge of ending their own life. God wants them to bring their whole selves too. That realization as I prepared to preach this sermon stopped me in my tracks. If we see these folks as anything less than human, we have fallen into their trap. We are now guilty of otherizing them. We have fallen into a way of thinking that we disdain. Someone said to me just the other day, she, was a, um, she worked in a hospice at a Catholic hospital. She said there was this really dear, sweet, older nun who said to her, you know, we are called to see the face of Jesus in everyone we meet, but sometimes he is very well disguised. <laughs> An authentic spiritual journey calls us to be willing to be honest about the parts of us and everybody else that are wounded, judgmental, angry, intolerant. Now hear me clearly, this is not to condone hurtful behavior, not to approve of it or, or say it's okay. There will always be consequences and there should be. But we gotta recognize that that is part and parcel of being a human being. We are created by God and we are capable of being healed by God. And that is why we bring our whole selves to this relationship. Now let's go back to the story about Athena, the young physician. She had asked the hospice chaplain, who as I told you is a Buddhist, if there might be some Buddhist ritual or uh, practice that she could use to help her get back her sense of purpose, to get back the love that she'd felt for practicing medicine. And Frank Ostaseski said, a Buddhist practice is not probably gonna help you. But he encouraged her to look at her own tradition, her own history, her own family traditions, her own spiritual journey to find the, 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 the healing that she was longing for. And that kind of resonated with her. That made sense to her that she would turn toward her own tradition. And she got to thinking about her family, a whole family of doctors. Her grandfather was a country doctor. 
She had inherited a beat-up old leather doctor's bag that he took with him when he saw patients, mostly at home. Her father had been a doctor, too, and she had his stethoscope. And these things, these artifacts, helped put her back in touch with the healing tradition of her family that she so valued and wanted to be a part of. Going forward, when she was called to pronounce a death, still a young woman, still late at night, she walked into the room with her grandfather's bag, and she used her father's stethoscope to listen for the heartbeat that was not there. And then she added another layer to it. She took a few drops of rose oil that always reminded her of her grandmother, and she made the sign of the cross on the person's forehead, and then she said this prayer. May you be at peace. May you find rest. May all of your suffering come to an end. She used her professional skills and training to do the job, and she tapped into her whole self to make that work meaningful again. She found a way to bring her whole self to the work of healing. She brought her whole self to that place inside of her that was discouraged and hopeless. And I wonder what it would be like for you if you did the same. That's what God wants from you, your whole self and nothing less. Amen.